this is Jonah Goldberg, and this is uh, the Jonah Goldberg podcast. I guess we're calling it The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg. Uh, for those of you who've read me for a long time, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't want to be upfront about this. I've been thinking about doing a podcast for a long time. Lots of people have listened to me on the GLOP podcast, which stands for Goldberg, Long, and Pedoritz, uh over at Ricochet. And I've been thinking about doing this for a really long while, but I always put it off because, one, it seems really sort of solipsistic uh, just to rant into a microphone, and I don't want to do that. So we're going to have people come on, and I'm going to talk to them. Um, we're going to do a lot of mime, which I know plays really well on um, audio. But anyway, uh, so this is the very first one, and I want to be really clear. I really don't know what I'm doing. I haven't quite figured it out yet. Um, I'm planning my, I have, I have, I have big aspirations for what we're going to do. Um, but I want it to be sort of different from your run of the mill podcast, a little weirder, a little more offbeat. I really, um, um, don't want to do just sort of an interview thing where I ask people about, you know, you know, zero based budgeting pro or con, you know, it's not my forte. That's what some of my colleagues at national review can do. Instead, um, I want this to be sort of freewheeling, and so I'm going to do, you know, um, you know, episodes about all sorts of wacky pop culture stuff, or about my cigar shop, or um, about movies, or weird things in history. And when my book comes out in the spring, lots of stuff about uh, political philosophy and um, um, and economic theory and history and all the rest. Um, if I sound nervous, it's because I'm incredibly self-conscious doing this, and it feels really unnatural to me. I've already recorded our first conversation, which came before I did this, um, just because of scheduling reasons. And I should say up front, you know, my attitude towards politicians generally is sort of like research scientists um, towards their lab animals. Um, you don't want to get too attached um, you know, part of my job as a syndicated columnist and as a writer for National Review and as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, um, particularly in the age of Donald Trump, is to call out my own side when I think it's wrong about something and to tell the truth as I see it. And one of the things that makes that really, really difficult is when you become friends with politicians. And so like with lab animals, it's much easier to stick a needle and test subject 43B than it is to stick a needle into Fluffy or Mr. Whiskers. Um, and that's why I try to keep politicians at bay. Um, but there are a few that I have a lot of respect for that I like who sort of like me feel, um, or at least I think they feel a little bit of out of step with where the country is these days, where the conservative movement is these days. Um, and one of them is, uh, my friend, Senator Ben Sass, who we'll be getting to in a little bit. I suppose I should mention on this vein, um, where the name, the remnant comes from. Um, it is not some sort of very thinly veiled Jewish joke about buying fabric, um, you know, as secondhand products. It's actually, um, it's a reference to one of my favorite writers and thinkers, a guy named Albert J. Nock, um, who wrote, among other things, My Enemy, the State, Our Enemy, the State. Um, and he wrote about this thing called The Remnant, which was his interpretation of a biblical story about Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And the basic idea is that there is this diverse group of people out there in the world who may not be political. They may not have this label or that label to them, but um, 
uh, and they're they're it's sort of like the silent majority, but they may not even be a majority, um, but they're the the right people, and they think the right way about things, and they are the sort of the the yeast. Um, when things go terrible and the living envy the dead and it's the zombie apocalypse and all of the rest, these are the kinds of people that will rebuild society in a positive way. And I don't know, just given the way things have been going lately and, you know, um, I've spent the last two years, uh, you know, searching Amazon fairly regularly for deals on Hemlock. Um, uh, I kind of feel like there is this strange sort of dislocated mass of people out there uh, who may support Donald Trump, who may not support Donald Trump. It's not about Trump, um, who but who just basically feel like um, the whole that they're taking crazy pills and um, and wherever they come down on politics, those are the people I want to talk to. And those are the people I kind of feel like um, are underrepresented in the national conversation these days, because the national conversation is defined by um, it's basically a demolition derby between different sort of monster truck uh, garbage fire dumpsters smashing into each other. And um, so anyway, that's sort of the idea of the remnant. And it is it should be overread or underread as you see fit, um, which brings me to another thing. Uh, for those of you who have been longtime readers of this weird newsletter thing that I do called The Goldberg File, um, I do that for me, right? Uh, in the very first one, in the revised version, that doesn't need to get too complicated, um, I likened it to the episode of WKRP where Randy Travis gets to tell Dr. Johnny Fever that um, – uh, he can actually do whatever he wants on air. He doesn't, you know, the new station manager doesn't care. Um, and Dr. Johnny Fever, who had used to be like the number one DJ in the con- in the rock DJ in the country, had lost his job because he at one point he said booger on the air. And um, so people who get furious with me about saying one thing or not saying another thing or picking a weird topic and all the rest, I definitely want your feedback but you're not the boss of me, and this is the podcast that I want to do, and if I don't enjoy doing it, I'm going to stop doing it because life is too short and I'm too busy to just do something um, that everybody else is doing. So booger. Um, and I, on that note, I should also say before we get to the talk with uh, Ben Sass, which you should stick around to the second half of, which was much better because, I mean, just with all of the talk about porn is really interesting. Um, but... Uh, um, the last thing I should say, which I sort of should have said up front, you know, is I'm a writer for National Review. I'm a senior editor at National Review. I've been there for almost 20 years now. And I'm also a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington. I would argue the best think tank in the country, um, where I'm talking to you from the studios there. And these two institutions are really, you know, in, in professional terms, my home. And they allow me to do things that a lot of similar institutions would never allow someone like me to do. And they give me the intellectual freedom, um, the, the journalistic freedom uh, to do what I think is right as I see it. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And you should also not hold it against either of these institutions um, when I de- dedicate an entire hour-long podcast 
to going frame by frame through my favorite women's prison movies or whatever it is I decide to do in this thing. Um, uh, this is, you know, I am an island unto myself when it comes to this podcast. And um, so it sinks or fails based entirely upon um, my incredibly poor judgment. Um, and without that, without much else, I want to say thanks for coming on board. Um, I plan some weird stuff going forward. Um, and I hope you'll stick around. And uh, if it seems like I'm winging this, it's only because I am. But thanks for indulging me. Uh, so this is my first, uh, I don't want to call it an interview because I don't want to do interviews. It's not what I wanted to start this thing with doing. But instead, we're going to do a first conversation with this guy I, I met on the street. Um, he needed uh, uh, some spare change, and I agreed to give it to him, and we sort of became friends. So uh, you people know him as um, as Ben Sass, a senator from one of those states, uh, and uh, he's here. Welcome aboard. Good to be here. It's uh, I got a passport to travel out of Nebraska, so thanks for the invite. That's great. You know, I, you know, I've been meaning to ask you about whether or not we're going to have more internal passports because I think that's sort of a big, important reform. Um, and so we have no agenda. If anyone could see in here, um, they would see that uh, Senator Sass is all dressed up. And Jonah's I'm, not wearing pants. I'm not wearing pants. That's my thing. Um, but I am wearing an amazing spaghetti strainer codpiece. Um, so anyway. And our work here is done. <laughs> um, I guess we should start with some sort of 30,000-foot thing. You know, uh, where do you think we are these days, politically, socially, culturally? You know, um, do you regret that uh, the sweet meteor of death did not fulfill his campaign promise and have an extinction-level event in 2016? Have you seen the meteor that seems to have hit the 1978 Chrysler LeBaron out in front of the Native American History Museum and Smithsonian's right now? That sounds like World War II code, but it, no, I have not. It's great <laughs> stuff. I, I was running the other day, and uh, I commute with my kids, and my kids were just in awe of this thing. There is a 78 LeBaron, which is sort of a medium-sized car, and they've put a rock on top of this thing that's roughly one and a half times the size of the car. It broke the frame front to back and side to side. I have no idea what the artistic significance of it is, but as a guy who likes public art in theory, but in practice never knows what the hell's going on, that one's really weird and bad, and I like it a lot. I just want to keep looking at it, and I kind of think it's a metaphor for the Republican Party. Yeah, uh, on the public art part, I, I actually think um, public art is one of those things like architecture that is more disconnected with mass tastes than almost any other thing. It's purely to please other elites. So I'm all in favor when like 10-year-old boys get to fulfill their vision and do something like, wouldn't it be cool if we could just crush a car with a giant boulder? That's that's good public art. Um, on the politics stuff, uh, so what uh, what do you think the defining problem is? Uh, that's big. I thought we were going casual, bro. Okay, fair uh, enough. No, right. what, do you, I'll, what do you I'll think? Do what do, do you think the fourth most defining problem is? <laughs> I think that we don't know what America means anymore. We don't have a shared understanding of what principled pluralism is. I mean, when you got data that shows forty-one percent of Americans under age thirty-five say the First Amendment's dangerous because you might say something that hurts somebody else's feelings, or uh, Brookings study last week, thirty percent of males on college campuses right now say they think violence is appropriate. Uh, on campus to shut down speakers that you think are intolerant. Um, that's a pretty big crisis of American civics. And I think you got two things happening at once. 
we have a hollowing out of local institutions because of where we are and economic and technology and the history of work. We have shortening duration jobs. And so the local, which is actually what gives people's lives meaning, where your family is and where your friends are and where you do your work and where you assemble to worship, the things that really give your life meaning are hollowing out. And at the same time, people are needing to find a new tribe and they're trying to politicize more and more of national conversation. So everything feels immediate to people, but it's far away. And there's lots of tribes and people want good versus evil that are going to just sort of swallow this. There's some bad guy out there. And if I can just be really against them with three million of my closest friends on a cable network, then everything will be OK. Right. That's and the thing is empty. And they're not really their closest friends. They're avatars of their friends. They're, the, the real friendship, you actually have to have a human being to talk to. The virtual communities are crappy Hong Kong knockoffs of actual communities, right? Yeah. It turns out shared experience with people who have bodies and that you spend time with them and you eat with them and argue and fish. Uh, that stuff is really where relationship builds over time. Right, right. Having, I mean, as this thing, whatever this thing is, uh, goes forward, um, I will probably be more shameless in my book plugging. But this is a big part of the thesis of this book that I have coming out um, in the spring. Um, You're writing a book? I didn't know. Uh, I know. Um, th that's why, again, uh, if this were a video podcast thing... Um, the cod piece wouldn't work. Well, the cod piece wouldn't work, but people would see that I'm working on my ZZ Top beard because uh, I've been locked in my basement like Howard Hughes with Kleenex boxes on my feet working on this thing for the last couple of years. Um, just burned my retina. Please stop. <laughs> and it's why my uh, fingernails are about seven inches long. Um, so uh, this, uh, this Roy Moore guy, he's going to be fun in the Senate with you, isn't he? I'd say lunch is going to get more interesting. Uh, <laughs> Senate Republicans have lunch together three days a week for almost an hour and a half. It's a whole lot of Republican. I think I'm the third most conservative guy in the Senate by voting record, but I'm not really that partisan. Politics has never been the center of my life, and this isn't my dream job. And so having lunch together Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday uh, with the 52 Republican senators, it can be pretty dry and boring. I think Judge Moore's probably going to spice that up a bit. I think that's right. All right, so I know this is awkward, and as I said in the previous part of this thing, I normally don't like to talk too much to politicians because... Me neither. Yeah. Uh, well, you picked the wrong line of work. Um, it's a temporary calling. Yeah. Um, but uh, here's the thing. All right, so on, on the Roy Moore thing, right, um, I'm not a... I'm not as a conservative. I don't really care because he'll probably vote pretty conservative and he'll be there and all that kind of stuff um, on most issues. But it seems to me that um, it'll make it more difficult for people like you, more difficult for people running from purplish states um, who need independents or moderates. Right. Because the, the Democrats are going to come up with a bunch of ads saying, you know, his colleague Roy Moore just said that, you know, gay Muslims shouldn't be allowed to be Muslim or gay or whatever the hell he talks about, right? And the argument that you get from this sort of Breitbartian crowd is that, um, well, Mitch McConnell is a bad leader and that somehow this is, you know, that punishing Mitch McConnell, making Mitch McConnell's life more difficult is a worthy reason to elect someone like Roy Moore. Or the other argument is, is that he's not a, um, that even though Trump didn't endorse him, He's the more Trump-like of the two two people, um, which they think is somehow a selling point. I personally do not. Um, um, it seems to me that the problem that we have these days with the Republican Party is that there is a, a faction that just simply 
you know, Steve Bannon likes to say uh, that he's a Leninist. Um, he also likes to say he's an intellectual. I don't think either of those things are true. Um, but he does believe in Lenin's theory that the worse, the better, right? Let's just blow things up. The classic radical position is um, let's just uh, make it so the center doesn't hold everything doesn't that everything is worse. Seems to me that a big part of the Republican Party right now, getting on this tribalism thing, is just simply dedicated to the idea that if it um, heightens the tensions, you know, in our society and makes people matter at each other, then it's then it's self-justifying. And is there is there a way to get past that um, other than just sort of time and patience? Boy, and that's meaty. So first of all, uh, you, you, you should invite Bannon in and let's have him come uh-huh. in and talk about what that Lenin quote means, because uh-huh. that'd be interesting, first of all. Second of all, I think politics as entertainment to come up with core identity is really lame and boring. But I do worry there are a lot of people who may think that the main way you come up with your identity is being anti, 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 anti th- something else in right. politics. And I just don't think that ever actually ends up making people happy. So it scares the crap out of me to think that people just might actually believe that making the political class people, whether they're ostensibly establishment or ostensibly anti-establishment, but they really live in D.C. and make their money off politics related stuff. Um, I think trying to make people pay more attention to politics to figure out what you're against to find your identity. I think that hurts actual people. So the Burkean, Tocquevillian localist in me wants people to revalue their local lives more and have the opportunity to have jobs that are durable and national security framework that protects them from jihadis, etc. So I don't I don't like the idea that that might be where we're going, but I think you might be onto something that there is sort of a grievance politics of the left that's been around for a bunch of decades, and now we're creating a populist white grievance politics as the backlash, or somebody's trying to figure out how to jump in front of it to lead it. And if you got progressive race, class, gender grievance politics grievance, and then you have white backlash grievance politics, I don't know where people who believe in kind of the historic American idea and actually the things that make people happy locally, I don't know where they fit. And so for love of neighbor reasons, I don't want to go the place you're saying they want to go. Yeah, well, there are lots of places I don't want to go that I end up going to. I mean, this is one of the problems that Hayek always observed, right, is that conservatives end up getting pulled in a direction not of their own choosing. Um, and I think that's in part because selling conservatism is hard. Yeah. Right? It asks something of people and tells them that the payoff is in the long run rather than the immediate. But populism just says, you know given to the dark side, embrace your feelings, you know, and that feels good in the transitory moment, but always leads to a letdown, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth parsing what populism means. And I know you've given it more thought than I, but at one level, if populism is anti-elitism and we live at a time where five of the seven richest counties in America are the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where the political class and the lobbyists live, if Washington is currently existing to serve Washington and national political elites, not to provide a framework for ordered liberty for 50 states, then populism has, has something to recommend it as a sort of reaction against that elitist consolidation of political power. But what populism usually means is majoritarianism. And the American constitution that I'm in love with and that all of our founders would know is a world where everybody is supposed to think of themselves as a creedal minority. And we want to create a Madisonian majority of people who all think of ourselves as creedal minorities protecting each other's right to be wrong. Majoritarianism scares me. 
That's not what politics are supposed to be about. I want a, I want a Republican, small R, Republican framework to allow most things to not happen here. I don't want more culture wars and then just try to settle them by whose, whose mob is 51% popular at the moment. Right. I mean, the, the way I always explain it to college kids is that pure democracy is simply the doctrine that 51% of the people get to pee in the cornflakes of 49% of the people. And that was something that the founders wanted to avoid, right? Um, hold up, hold up. As a guy who's worked in fields a lot, uh-huh. like there are times when 12-year-old boys sort of do something as a practical joke on your friend in the field, which is they get further down the row, they detassel a corn stalk, and then they pee in the top of the corn stalk, then they put the tassel back, and then when your friend gets there and he goes to detassel, his hand will smash into it and pee will fly all over himself. Where are you from that you're peeing <laughs> in corn flakes? Exactly. People pee in corn, so why are you peeing in corn flakes? <laughs> well, look, you're on the producer side of these things i'm the downstream consumer we don't have the opportunity to pee in the corn stalks um i'm impressed the laziest adolescents i've ever seen peeing in the product to be honest i've never i've never seen anyone pee in cornflakes i have seen people pee in mountain dew um because it has the same color and then you give it to somebody but that's you know that's neither here and that was basically you know where's the lifeline button on this podcast (laughs) that was a, a that was one of um um, one of Buckley's favorite pranks when he had people over to his house is peeing in Mountain Dew. Yeah, it was awesome. No, just kidding. Um, but um, so um, um, I'm impressed that you managed to get a corn reference in. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, no, that's very I'm good. Two and a half years trained now. <laughs> um, you calling? Um, all right. So uh, you know, again, I don't know how to do these kind of. In- I don't want to do interviews, but um, it's pretty obvious. Uh, <laughs> um, Again, listeners can't see that I'm openly weeping as I'm doing this. It's it's really uh, the stress is getting to me with the seven inch nails. Um, and uh, but that said, uh, what like what is the weirdest thing about the Senate that you didn't expect it to be? And social thing, not politics thing. Uh, how many dudes wander around in tidy whities on flip phones in the gym? Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, there's a there's a that was one of the most shocking things I experienced when I first moved to D.C. There used to be the 17th Street uh, Y right by the old AAI building. And um, there were a number of famous pundits that I used to see on like the McLaughlin group and that kind of thing. Just walking around naked talking about like, do you think they're going to get cloture? And <laughs> it's like, I'm, I, like I was scarred by all that. Oh. And there's the older generation thinks that like. The height of masculinity is to walk around naked in a locker room. And I don't get it. I think it comes from the time when the YMCA used to be a time for naked swimming, to be real honest. Uh-huh. Uh, and it turns out lots of guys in the South still swim naked. Uh-huh. I'm 45. Yeah. We don't swim naked where I'm from. Yeah. Um, but there is a weird culture in D.C. of people who wander around naked talking politics. And yeah. I've, that's new to me. And frankly, I'm fine for it to remain foreign. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, this is one of the reasons why I uh, I tend to stay home as a hermit rather than sort of go to these Georgetown cocktail parties because I'm always afraid they're going to take out a jar full of car keys and things are going to get weird. <laughs> um, so. I don't even, for the record, I don't even know what that means. Oh, Just in the 70s, on. there were these things called key parties. And the way you would sort of swing is you would, uh, there's a movie called The Ice Storm all about this. Uh, the way you would... Uh, uh, pair up with women or men who were not your wife or husband was they would all sort of draw like lots from a big jar, someone's car keys and whoever's car keys were that, that's who would go pair off. And um, I'm pretty sure this is the exact way Rome fell, except it was with like riding crops for the, like their chariots or whatever. But uh, 
Um, anyway, if you have to explain a joke, it becomes kind of a problem. But... Uh, it seems to me that that would be a really important invite to accept or reject having some broader knowledge of the invite list. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's sort of like when you get those evites now and you can see who's RSVP'd yes, <laughs> you know, and if like Jerry Nadler said yes, maybe I'm just not going. <laughs> um, but hey, that's me. Um, so I know you got to get going pretty soon because there's, there's, um, important dysfunction to get to up on the hill and, um, I'm pretty much convinced that when they build that visitor's annex on the hill, they disturb some sort of ancient moron burial ground, and nothing has worked right in Washington ever since. Um, but if you had to sort of say, first of all, I hope you'll come back. We're going to do this kind of regularly. That's sort of the plan, right? Thanks for the invite. I mean, unless you talk about key parties every time. Well, not every time. That gets a little old. <laughs> um, but uh, um, And hopefully we won't have to talk about politics all that much. I just figured on the inaugural edition of this thing, it would be weird if we just talk about peeing and corn. I mean, I know that was the one action item that you, you're, especially your press guy, was like determined that you get in there. It was yeah. a precondition in our contract of participating in the podcast that there would be corn urination as a segment. But the, the most impressive part is how you worked it in naturally. And I feel bad for having blown your cover by actually telling everybody that this was a planned spontaneity. I, I do think it's important, given your addiction to college football, uh -huh. uh, that we cover the fact that Nebraska named an interim athletic director yesterday. Uh -huh. And or this week, it, it was rolled out officially. And uh, it's a guy named Dave Remington, who was one of my heroes when I was a little kid. Um, he was a, the center at Nebraska from 1980 to 1983, during which he didn't just win the Outland and Lombardi trophies, mm -hmm. best lineman, best interior lineman, the best lineman or linebacker in America. But he won the conference offensive player of the year as a center nice. in 1982 or 83 and he he only had one acl and wow. that's that's how tough and mean we make them and so i know that you're dedicating the day to dave remington i just wanted to thank you for that I mean, no i appreciate it man. and just full disclosure of that most of that was pretty much like uh the sounds that charlie brown's english teacher makes <laughs> um, as far as i could tell <laughs> um and uh um but hopefully we'll have you on here, and I will start doing more prep. I have a couple obsessed uh, Nebraska football fans, friends, who, um, you know, sacrifice ox to the gods whenever they play and all that kind of stuff, and I will... I you will. should come to a game. It's the third largest city in the state every Saturday is the Memorial Stadium, which hasn't had an open seat since October of 62. Although, sort of like you going to a bullfight, I assume. Yeah, no, well, that's the thing. We were talking about this right beforehand. Um, uh, I went to a bullfight last week. Um, a friend of mine took me out there and took me to Spain on this trip that he had arranged. And yes, he's very wealthy and I'm not. So I, it was very difficult to say no. Um, so I didn't. And um, rich people inviting you to stuff just compels you to accept the invite. Um, you should consult a, your mom because that rule, I don't know that rule. My mom was a journalist. My dad was a journalist. This is how we live. <laughs> and no, it's serious. When, when I, I don't want to get the guy in trouble, so I won't say who he is. But when he emailed me the offer, um, I looked at it and I was like, you know, I've spent two days with a grease board and legal pads trying to figure out how I could say no to this. And I just can't. So I went off to Seville and I saw a bullfight. And I'd seen one before and it was as horrible as I remember. Um, People may or may not know I'm a softie on animals, right? I think animal cruelty is a terrible thing. Um, I still eat meat. I wouldn't ban bullfights or anything like that, certainly not in Spain. But it's not a sport. It's a sadistic ritual in which um, a terrified animal is trying to escape for dear life, and they basically have a gory ballet 
in which they ostentatiously kill this thing. And um, what is really amazing to me is how much better it was than even 50 years ago. It used to be. Like, so one of the things they do in this traditional Spanish bullfight is a guy comes out on a horse with this, like, spear thing. Um, it's sort of like one of those tongs that you use to hold corn in place to just give you a visual because it doesn't have a deep blade, but it's just enough to sort of poke into the bull's spine. And to be clear, again, as you reference corn, you only do it from the consumption side. But go ahead, <laughs> the little tiny, teeny prongs so you don't get your precious well, fingers don't, dirty. Don't get me started on ethanol if we want to do that. But anyway, um, uh, and the... Uh, right in words. Um, the... The horse guy, the picadero, whatever he's called, he comes out on this horse that is draped in this incredibly thick sort of chainmail blanket thing. And the bull sees a horse. Ah, this is my escape. And he attacks it and tries to gore it. And 50 years ago, they didn't have the blanket thing. So one bull, one night at the, at the arena, five to 10, 15 horses would mm-hmm. get gored and slaughtered and disemboweled in the arena. And people would cheer this. And... um so anyway, I thought it was a fascinating ritual insight into an ancient custom. I also thought it was awfully prancy and delicate with these matadors and their, their wedgie pants and whatnot. Um, but uh, I guess we know what attire you're wearing next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I, I've, I've now seen a bullfight once every 30 years, and that's basically the pace I'd like to keep. And that may be even too much. Is the so. conclusion always the same? I've never been to one. Yeah, so... Uh, I, my sense is about 99 out of 100 have to end with the bull being killed. It's very rare, but every now and then a bull who's a really good fighter is spared by the crowd. But he's already been cut up terribly, right? And um, and then he gets to have sort of this Hugh Hefner-like retirement because they breed him and all that kind of thing. But um, uh, mostly, almost has to end in the killing of the bull. And the problem is it's it's... So we went to one night where they had six different bullfights. Six bulls were killed. Mm. And um, each um, each time, it's the exact same ritual. It's like watching a baseball game where all the players have to do the same thing each inning. Like the exact same series of plays, the exact same series of swings. And so once you've seen one of these six, you've basically seen them all, right? And that's why I think something's got to give just because... There's it's 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 now this very esoteric thing for people who understand the minutia of bullfighting. And if you don't understand that stuff, there's nothing to get you engaged in it other than rooting for the bull, which is like you don't want to be put in that position. How big is the crowd when we were there? I think it was about seven, eight thousand people. And is everybody drunk? No, although they they're drunk people. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I was one of them. <laughs> um, so I recognize my kind. But um, uh, no, but it's like the people get dressed up. I mean, that part of the ritual I like, right? I mean, this sort of this ancient tradition and Spanish culture and people know all this weird stuff about how to read things, about how to grade things and all that. Apparently, Mexican bullfighting, well, I, I know this, but also this bullfighter was explaining to me, Mexican bullfighting is far more populist. It's much more like NASCAR. Is there betting? I don't think so. That would be what would they bet on? How quickly the bull goes, right? Uh-huh. I mean, sort of like in a rodeo, how quickly, how long the guy can stay on. Um, but it's like people are cheering, having fun, getting drunk, you know, kind of thing. And and the Spanish one is more. It's not perfectly analogous, but more like opera. It's this thing that you go to imbibe and sit in this atmosphere. I prefer, which I have seen, Portuguese bullfighting, which is awesome. Portuguese bullfighting. It's nine guys. 
the one guy, two columns of four, one guy in front, and they charge the bull. And they basically try to wrestle it to a standstill or tip it over, and then they let it go. And the first guy, and the guy in the lead, no swords, no swords, and the guy in the lead gets this running start wearing this sort of like motley fool hat. And people should YouTube it. It's all over the place. And he gets a running start, and he tries to leap and land his hips between the bull's horns, and then grab it around the neck, <laughs> and then and sing soprano, basically, and like blind it with his torso while the other guys leap on board and like try to push him over. And then at the end, the um, the bull. Uh, it was like, what the hell was that, right? I mean, this was, this was strange. And then they, they release what I gather from the bovine perspective are three very attractive cows um, who are like, hey, big boy, come with me. And they just sort of escort the bull out of the arena. And like that, I can get behind, right? I mean, that's a, first of all, it's a fair fight. You've just given me three lines. I just, I had to let pitches just keep going by there. <laughs> but anyway, you keep defining a beautiful cow for yourself, Jonah. <laughs> well, I said from the bovine perspective. I mean, I know that, look, you're the guy who grew up on a farm. I'm sure you have a much more developed taste or uh, aesthetic sensibility for the uh, loveliness of farm animals than I do. To be clear, I grew up in a 25,000-person ag town visiting the farm of my cousins. Uh -huh. And so just like you're looking down on me, I will debate with my cousins about who has the better bovine scent. <laughs> <laughs> I am a, I am not a, I'm not looking down on you. I just, you know, you come from uh, a world very alien to my Upper West Side of Manhattan in the 1970s. Yeah. Do you think there's betting on Portuguese bullfighting? Because it seems like there's a lot more demand. Do any of the nine not make it out alive? I, the one I went to 30 years ago, a guy got gored. I mean, got, you know, took a big chunk of his love handle off, which was pretty awesome. Um, um, Mixed blessing. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't hitting the paramutual parlors when I was like 14 years old when I saw this thing. So um i'm just thinking about your you know opera end of the continuum and populist end like, yeah, yeah yeah i've never been to like cockfighting or any of that stuff have right you ever been to that i've not been to a cockfight so i i, I knew a, I, an oklahoma congressman who said it's a tough road to navigate in oklahoma because on the one hand you don't want to ever have been to a cockfight on the other hand you don't want to have not been related to the experience of being <laughs> to a cockfight and so what he would do is he would go to lots of cockfights during the sort of pre-fighting festivity the tailgating loud, the tailgating oh nice cockfighting the loud music he would hand out campaign t-shirts uh -huh. and then he would leave right before the opening yeah yeah that's gun. fascinating i don't know what happens but then there are all these people that had his t-shirts for his campaign all over the cockfight though he himself could wash his hands he'd never been to a cockfight but it seems to me Populist cockfighting requires alcohol and betting to work. And it, I would get fighting connection here. I think you need probably more than just alcohol to make this a big magnet. Yeah, I mean, the scene I keep thinking of is in The Jerk where they find the, the bootleg film of um, a South American cat juggling where there's all sorts of betting going on. But I, I don't know. I have an answer to that. <laughs> I do think that, um, that, uh, that uh, cockfight tailgating has potential to be a really great euphemism for something, but I just don't know what it is. I think it's the American election of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I think on that uplifting and edifying note, um, we should probably call this quits, and um, I hope to have you back on really, really soon. Good to you be know. here. Great to have you, and um, uh, for listeners who don't know, the plan on this, we, uh, Senator Sass and I talked about actually doing a regular podcast together, um, uh, I think the response from the 
the from press- my, my wife was, let's hear how much Jonah talks about inappropriate things first. Yeah, yeah, and the, and from the press office was, I think there was just a, a muffled, dear God, no. Um, so instead, uh, uh, we're going to have uh, Senator Sass on. He has an open invitation to come back whenever he wants and um, sort of make him one of these sort of regular irregulars around here. Um, and you should not ascribe to him any sort of uh, affiliation with the very weird group of other people who might be on here from time to time. Um, I think it's the most fair thing I can say. And uh, anyway, thanks very much for being here. Thanks for the jerks reference. Appreciate it. <laughs> Appreciate the movie. Anytime we go to the 70s, I'm happy. <laughs> Peace.